Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. We've opened our Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Not too many years ago, I was called to the bedside of a dying believer, and the question that was asked was an important question, tender to the heart of the one who only had a couple of days left on this earth. The question was, Pastor, what's it going to be like when I die? It wasn't the question, what's heaven like? It's, what will the journey be in getting there? When you open your Bible to the Gospel of Luke chapter 16, the Lord Jesus fills in some of the blanks for us when He shares in the 20th verse that there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at the gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with crumbs that fell from the rich man's table, Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. By the way, a friend of mine, Dr. Fred Moritz, a genuine uh, a biblical scholar, when he got a dog, he named his dog Moreover, in honor of this verse. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. The beggar died and... He was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. We sing the songs, the song, Angels Watching Over Me, My Lord. There's reality in that song. We find great comfort in the 23rd Psalm that tells us, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. The reality is that John the Revelator, when writing the book of the Revelation, talks often of the angels who guided him around heaven and explain to him what he was seeing. I believe that God sends his angels to our bedside, if you will, uh, to carry us and for those angels to answer questions for us. And it's something that we ought to find comfort in and something that we ought to rejoice in. As we open our Bibles this evening, we're talking about angels once again, and this evening we're going to focus on the future of angels. So let's ask the Lord to bless as we look in His Word. Father, I pray that we would learn from Your Word this evening and go out from this service rejoicing in Your goodness to us, thankful that underneath are the everlasting arms, thankful that when the heavens were opened and the eyes of the servant of the prophet could see, he was able to see the angels surrounding the camp of God, surrounding those who love Him. Lord, remind us of that this evening as we open Your Word. May our hearts be opened as well, and we'll thank You for it, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The doctrine of angiology is a large doctrine in God's Word. In fact, we find over 350 references to angels in the Word of God, and I believe there's great benefit to God's people to consider what the Word of God has to say with regard to the matter of angels. Can you think of some ways that you benefit from the discussion of this topic that's sadly seldom considered as we've talked about angels and as your mind has been filled with the theme over the last several weeks when we've gathered here? What practical benefits come for the believer as the believer considers angels and their ministry? Can you give me some? What's that? Safety. Psalm 91, he gives his angels charge concerning us to keep us in all our ways. Safety. 
What other thoughts come to mind that are practical benefits? Loy. Yes, they, they're with us when we fear, so we need not fear. We are surrounded by the, the angels. Joe? They make big announcements, that's for sure. Throughout the pages of the Bible, there are some messenger angels making some huge announcements. I've not been the beneficiary of any one of those announcements personally, but the beneficiary of those publicly as we see them dis- displayed in God's Word. Tony, what practical benefit do you get out of thinking about angels? Oh, amen. God had you pull off along the way. But I'm thinking more specifically on what other biblical themes are more profoundly developed. Maybe I should ask it that way by our consideration of angels. Rob? Yes. It's the organizational nature of things that we don't see, but those things that we don't see, we're told in Corinthians, are eternal. So being able to reflect on God's organizational ability, even in that which is invisible to us, that's a helpful thing. Yes, Dory? Yes, they're exemplary in their worship of God. Here are these great beings that God has created. One of them could go through Egypt and all the firstborn die, and we see them almost trembling in their worship and adoration of God. Ken? Amen, they sure do. Uh, Are not they all ministering spirits sent forth to minister unto those who shall be heirs? I think we get a better perspective of the holiness of God. I think we get a better perspective of the sovereignty of God. I think understanding angels helps us to understand the greatness of our God in ways that perhaps we otherwise would not understand. So I thank the Lord for this doctrine, though seldom considered. It's a doctrine of great importance to us. Angels, whether fallen or faithful, are not static. Instead, angels are formed with curiosity. We read about their curiosity throughout the pages of God's Word, and because of their curiosity, they are learning. And as they grow in knowledge, they grow in their ability to serve the Lord with wisdom. Now, that tells me something about my future and yours. What does it tell us about our futures? Well, if God created the angels as those who have a will to serve Him, and us who are the elect of God, who have a desire to serve Him, it's amazing to consider that we're created in a way like the angels that we can grow in knowledge and become more adept at His service throughout eternity. We're going to discover some of the curiosities of the angels as we enter into our considerations this evening, but God's faithful angels develop their capacity to serve their Creator. They observe things. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. What is it that the angels are observing? Well, they're observing our worship, even as we sang this evening, even as testimony was shared, even as we prayed this evening. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I begin in verse 2 very important passage in God's Word with regard to orderliness in worship services when we gather together as saints. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 2, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Here's God's structure. 
Every man praying or prophesying, then having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head. For that even all as all one, as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image of the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. He's talking about the structure of God's creative order. So in the structure of God's creative order, God created man in the image of God, and then God created the woman after the man. This is a created order. And in that created order, we learn in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that the reason that men are called upon to be active in spiritual leadership is not cultural. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says the woman is to learn in silence. Why? Because Adam was first created, he says, and then Eve. So he takes the matter of leadership spiritually back to the creative order. That predates any cultural consideration. There are those who would say, well, women ought to be leading in ministries today because, after all, in the culture to which the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesus or Corinth, women were illiterate. That is not at all how the Apostle Paul is arguing. He's bringing it back to creative order, and that's what he's doing here. He's talking about the structure and the organization that God has given to us. The man is not of the woman, verse 8, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. My wife and I were in a testimony service years ago, and a well-meaning lady stood up. She was a rather strong woman. I think that's fair to say. And uh, she shared a testimony. She patted her husband's shoulder lovingly. She said, I'm so thankful for the help meet that God gave to me. And I thought as she said it, truer words have probably never been shared. Uh, But that's not the way the testimony ought to be. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head. He's talking about that symbol of power in this passage because of the, do you see it there in verse 10? The angels. Now there's a curiosity of a passage. This structural order, this submissive order, especially as it's represented in the gathering of believers, is given to us and motivation for this structural order being considered and followed is found in the angels. He's saying that the angels are watching when we gather together to worship. Now, there are those who will take this passage and say, all right, uh, this is a passage that teaches that every woman who comes to church ought to wear a shawl or uh, a hat. The thing that causes me to say I'm not in that camp is the 16th verse we read there, if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. So he's actually modified the instruction by saying this is the custom that's fitting for the church at Corinth. In the church at Corinth, for the woman to have her head uncovered was a shame to her. Now why? Most students of the community of Corinth would say, and this is true, that the history of Corinth being such a terrible history of a port and polluted city was that of having temple priestesses who shaved their heads and offered themselves in prostitution in the temple. And if you wanted to identify one of the temple priestesses, she would be the one with the shaven head. So going to church with your head uncovered 
could identify you in a way that you did not want to be identified. By the way, I've gone to many countries and preached, and the ladies in those countries very elegantly and very um, sacredly covered their heads with shawls. Uh, you'll never see an Indian Christian lady in a service without a shawl to cover her head. Same thing in Eastern Europe, whether it be in Belarus or Ukraine, you'll see them pull the shawl up over their head during all times of prayer in the service. So they've made this passage in their culture literal. I would too, if I didn't look at the 16th verse and consider the Apostle Paul saying, we have no such custom. This is not the typical ethos in every church, but it is in Corinth. Now, in Corinth, what's he trying to teach? He's teaching that God created the man, God created the woman, and along the way in this creative order, there's submission and there's organization and there's responsibility and specifically, he says, the motivation for it in your church is the angels are watching. So why are the angels curious about how we do worship? Help me out on this. Why would the angels care? What, what would cause this to be a particular curiosity to the angels when they watch our worship services? They're watching to see if the women in the services are actually in submission to their husbands. And the evidence in Corinth was their head was covered. Worship to them is certainly a big deal. We worship God in the right way. Let's go back to the history of the angels for a little bit. Something happened among the angelic hosts. It was huge. It's eternal. What happened? A third of them fell. What was the issue? Pride. Submission. Submission and pride was the issue. Satan fell because I will be like the Most High. Do you see there a little bit of a clue as to why the angels even today would be watching those who are fellow heirs of Christ when we worship? Curiosity to them. Hmm. I wonder if they demonstrate submission. After all, among the angelic host, the topic of submission still resonates as a topic that caused great destruction. So in this passage, he's saying, think about this, folks. When you come to worship, the angels are watching, and they're curious about whether or not you're really submissive in your spirit. Because without a submissive spirit, there's no foundation for worship. And the angels could testify of that. So we're saying, when it comes to the angels, they're not inactive. They have curiosity. One of the things they're curious about is our worship. They're also curious about our work. They're curious about the work of the church collectively. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 21, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, and listen to his words. Paul in 1 Timothy 5, 21 says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one another, doing nothing by partiality. Now I'm charging you, Paul says, before God, before the Lord Jesus Christ, and the angels, that you do these things, not preferring one another. Now, the context of 1 Timothy 5, he's just given very clear instruction as to how the widows are to be taken care of. He's just said, if a man is not willing to take care of his own, he's denied the faith, he's worse than an infidel, Oh, by the way, he says, 
I'm charging you, Timothy, get this right. Make sure this order and these instructions are carefully followed. I'm bringing the angels as witnesses with regard to the work you're doing in the local church. The angels are curious about how we follow the mandates of God as revealed to us plainly in God's Word. And that goes for the individuals as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes and he says, For I think that God has set forth us, the apostles, last as it were appointed to death. For we're made a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. Paul was knowledgeable that the angels were watching how he served the Lord. Paul challenged Timothy to realize that when you gather together with the saints and when you're following the mandates that are given in scriptures, the angels are watching. Yes, there's truth in the song, angels watching over me, my Lord. Take your Bibles and go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. What else are the angels curious about? What else do they observe? Well, 1 Peter chapter 1 says in verse 10, of which salvation, he's talking about our salvation, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. The prophets were speaking of God's grace even before it had been poured out. And these prophets searched what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost, sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. The angels desire to understand our witness when it comes to the matter of salvation. Okay, help me out again a little bit. So why are the angels intrigued by our salvation? Think like an angel for a minute. I know that's hard for most of us. Vicki? So, so John and Vicki hit it the same note. He said it shorter and you then filled out the chord. <laughs> same answer. Really good. Uh, John, be, John said uh, because they don't receive salvation. That's true. Uh, the angels as moral agents... All moral agents of God are confirmed in righteousness or unrighteousness. The confirmation of our confirmed in righteousness or unrighteousness comes at the day of our death. It's appointed and the man wants to die. Until that day of death, now is the appointed time, today is the day of salvation. But at the day of our death, we as Humans with souls that will live somewhere forever will be confirmed in righteousness or unrighteousness. Now, the angels that fell and left their first estate, as Jude speaks about, they're forever confirmed in unrighteousness, and there is no salvation plan for them. Don't you love the song that says, holy, holy, holy is what the angels sing, and I intend to help them make the chords of heaven ring? When I sing salvation's story, they will fold their wings. Angels have never known the joy that my salvation brings. We will have a special note of resonance, of joy in heaven that the angels don't have. Now, all that by way of introduction, just to say the angels are not static. They're very involved. In fact, they're changing in what they know. And I think that's a truth that ought to be inspiring to us. 
we need to wipe away the picture of sitting on a cloud playing a harp in eternity. God didn't, God did not design us to be dullards. God gave to us the capacity of growth. And when we think about angels which are eternal, not confined in the in the space and time continuum, the angels are growing, and even now they're curious about what's happening in this momentary continuum in which we're living. They want to know about our submission in worship. They want to know about are we obedient to the commands that God has given to us. They want to know about His servants and the challenges they're facing, and they want to know about our salvation. Though they'll never comprehend it, they can look into it. They won't experience it from the inside out. But they want to get to know it from the outside in. Josh. Oh, that's a good question because we're going to come to that, aren't we? Uh, could it be part of their curiosity to know who's going to uh, rule over them in the millennial kingdom, Josh said? Because it's true that one day we who are a little lower than the angels will be elevated. And 1 Corinthians 6, of course, says we will even judge the angels. So I guess Josh is thinking of it this way. Are there some angels in here this evening going, well, you know... If Josh is judging me, it might be okay, but if Pastor Phelps, I don't want to come near that guy. Uh, I don't know about that, Josh, but it's kind of an interesting and intriguing thing, isn't it? The Bible has a whole lot to say about the future of angels, and we'll move through as much of this as we can this evening. God's faithful angels are integrally involved in the future that God has promised the church and the world and those who have rejected the will of God. So as we look about the future of the angels, we can start by talking about faithful angels in the tribulation, faithful angels in the tribulation. Prior to the tribulation, and now I'm, I'm assuming some things and not necessarily slowing down to prove them, but I'm assuming that we are looking at a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. And I'm assuming that following the rapture of the church, there'll be a seven-year tribulation. Following that seven-year tribulation, there's going to be a time called Armageddon, and Jesus is going to return, according to the book of the Revelation, the 20th chapter, as a great conqueror, the 19th chapter, rather. And then the Bible tells us about a millennium, a kingdom, a thousand-year reign. So with those assumptions in mind, I'm going to start by saying the Bible tells us that when the church is raptured, pre-tribulation, before the tribulation, when the church is raptured, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says there's going to be a voice of the archangel and the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. I've pointed this out before. That little phrase in the air is important. We're going to meet the Lord where? It doesn't say heaven. It says in the air. I think we're all going to shout, na 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 na. That's not theologically correct. But here's why we're going to shout that. There is today one who is the prince of the power of the air. When the church is gathered at the moment of the rapture, the power of Christ will resonate over the one who today is the prince of the power of the air to meet the Lord in the air. And we shall ever be with the Lord. Well, following that rapture, take your Bibles and go to Revelation chapter 7. God tells us a lot about the activity of angels. Revelation chapter 7. 
The faithful angels will continue serving, serving their sovereign God. Revelation 7 and verse 1, after these things, I saw four angels standing in the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. The faithful angels in the tribulation will have something to do with controlling the elements of nature. They are holding the winds, that they would not blow on the earth, or the sea, or any tree. Likely, that will be the first time in the history of this planet that it's a totally wind-free zone. But they'll have something of power over the elements of nature. It's interesting to me to ponder, in God's Word, the merger of angels who are spiritual with physicality. And I know there are some in this room that are far more scientifically minded than I, But I do find it interesting to pause and think just a little bit of how angels who are ministering spirits, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1, how the angels who are ministering spirits can interface with the physicality of humanity and the world. But it happens, doesn't it? Where do we see angels in the Bible appearing as men? Yes, Abraham. In the book of Genesis, uh, Abraham is having a conversation. Three angels show up. He slaughters the fatted calf. And at the end of that delicious meal that the angels have enjoyed with Abraham, God says, you know, should I hide from Abraham what my intent is? And he talks to Abraham about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which brings me to the next time. When do we see angels? Yes. Yes. And in the Old Testament, I think that's a whole other lesson. The angel of the Lord, which I believe is a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, appears over and again. But I'm thinking of another one. Yes, Mary? Yeah, the, Lot, the angels come. He lets them into his house. He's talking to them about washing their feet. Now, how do these spirits who are sent forth to minister take on flesh I don't have an answer to that. That's one of those questions that one day I'd like to ask. But it is interesting, isn't it, how angelic beings interface with physicality. In the Old Testament, the Psalms, the 68th Psalm, giving the history of Israel as Israel is coming out of Egypt and wandering in the wilderness, Psalm 68 verse 17 says, God fed them with angels' food. So do angels eat? Or is it just a metaphor? Mary? Yeah. He speaks of those who have entertained angels unawares. Let's let's move on. Not only do they control nature in Revelation 7, but we see them protecting the 144,000. I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. He cried with a loud voice. The four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God our God in their foreheads. I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the, I'm going to put this in here, literal children of Israel. That's not in there. That's my translation. Okay, these are the 144,000 Jews that are being sealed. Well, how do I know they're Jews? Because they're identified as such. Of the tribe of Judah, sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000. 
I read in verse 9, And after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all the nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, crying with a loud voice, Salvation to our God who sits upon the throne. Who are these people? This innumerable group of all people, kindreds and tongues. Well, the, the 13th verse, one of the elders answered and said, What are these who are arrayed in white robes, and whence did they come? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. He said to me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation, washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Will people be saved in the tribulation? Absolutely. How many? You can't count them. It's going to be the greatest revival, if you want to use that term for it, the greatest evangelistic endeavor in the history of our planet. So every time I hear somebody talk about we're just about to pass 8 billion on the planet, I say, hallelujah, bring them on. You hear me say along, often around here, every time someone's with child, I'm excited as a pastor. Be fruitful and multiply. Still in the Bible. So bring them on. And when it comes to the expansion of the population of the globe, absolutely. Because the greatest thought that ought to spring off that page is this. As God allows the population on the planet to grow, He has a plan. His plan is two witnesses who will become 144,000 witnesses who will witness during the tribulation so that an innumerable multitude will be saved. Wow. So, population explosion, hallelujah. I think God has a plan. Well, these angels are protecting the 144,000. As you come to chapter 8, they're sounding the trumpets of judgment. They're sounding the trumpets of judgment. When he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of a half hour. I saw the seven angels which stood before God. To them were given seven trumpets. And, of course, they're going to announce the trumpet judgments one by one. So in verse 7, the first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood. The angels are very clearly involved in the tribulational time. Revelation chapter 9, not only are they sounding the trumpets of judgment, they're releasing Satan's hordes. Revelation chapter 9, the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star, verse 1, fall from heaven unto the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he, I believe it's the angel here, opened the bottomless pit. There arose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace. The sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. It came out of the smoke locust upon the earth. Unto them were given power as the scorpions upon the earth have power. It was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, either any green thing or any tree, but only those which have not the seal of God in their forehead. To them it was given that they should not kill, that they should be tormented five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when he strikes a man. And in those days shall man seek death and shall not find it. And so the angels are involved in opening up the chained ones, these who left their first estate, according to the book of Jude, are now released. And there's an unholy presence that's been released in the earth. You come to chapter 10, you discover that the angels are involved in announcing the closing of time, the closing of God's working in time with man. Chapter 10 and verse 5, and the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, created heaven and the things that there are in and the earth and the things that there are therein are, and the sea and the things which therein that are therein, that there should be time no longer. 
They announce the closing of God's work with men. When we go beyond the tribulation and we bring ourselves into the ministry of the angels in the millennium, in the millennium, what are they doing there? Well, Matthew chapter 25 says in verse 31, when the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all of the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. They're there accompanying the Lord when He comes. By the way, what other events do you see the angels attending, companioning with, watching while the Lord is active on this planet? Where do we see the angels in the activity of the Lord on this planet? Tom? At the tomb? It's the angels who announce to the women who come there, what are you looking for? So they're there at the resurrection. Uh, they're there at the incarnation. They, they were announcing over the, over the skies of Bethlehem. Josh? The temptation of Christ, Matthew 4, Darlene? The birth of Christ, the incarnation. There was one more. What's that? Uh, in, the, in the life of Christ. Yeah. Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye here gazing up into heaven? So throughout the great events in the life of Christ, the angels are revealed to us, and so it will be in the coming of the millennium. They take vengeance on the enemies of God. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, the people in the church were fearful that they had entered into the tribulation. And in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, they're given this comfort. 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 7, to you who are troubled, you're shaken thinking that you're living in the tribulation, you'll receive rest with us when the Lord shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, uh, they take vengeance on the enemies of God. They gather together the nations for judgment in Matthew chapter 13 and verses 41 and 42. Two, they're gathering together the nations for judgment, Matthew chapter 13, and no one's going to escape their view, and no one's going to be able to run away from their embrace. Matthew 13, verse 41 says, the Son of Man shall send forth His angels, they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and them that do iniquity, shall cast them into the furnace of fire, where there be wailing and gnashing of teeth. They gather to see the believers rewarded. Again, in Matthew 13, verse 43, we read, Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun of the kingdom to their Father, who hath ears to hear, let them hear. They're in that same spot. They bind Satan in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. What a day that must be for the angels who didn't leave their first estate. An angel came down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, a great chain in his hand, he laid hold on the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, and set a seal on him that he should deceive the nations no more. Who did it? Verse 1, an angel came down from heaven and bound Satan for a thousand years. And we're going to end with this one tonight. They fellowship with the faithful in the millennial kingdom. They fellowship with the faithful. Hebrews chapter 12 reminds us. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22, you come into the Mount Zion 
unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, you, believers, Christians, to this innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all the spirits, and the just men made perfect. Yes, faithful angels are in eternity, casting Satan into the lake of fire and reigning with Christ forever. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast. Thank you.